Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the uh, welcome back to the New Books and Music, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Alex Kuchma, the host of the channel. And today I'll be talking to Jeff Harkness about his new book, Devious Minds, the 20 year saga of the greatest rap group to almost make it out of Kansas. Jeff Harkness, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I uh, I followed your career for a little bit of time. I've read some of the other work that you've done in the Chicago hip hop kind of underground hip hop scene. And uh, it was a blessing to be able to get my hands on this and to uh, to kind of dive into this material with a little bit more depth. So yeah, thank you. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you uh, having me here. Um, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about your uh, a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, I was born in Lawrence, Kansas. I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, and lived there, uh, you know, until I was 15 years old. I grew up working in a record store. When I was 13, I got a job there, learned all about music. I played in bands, in punk bands and metal bands in Kansas City uh, when I was 15. Went to lots of concerts. Um, my mom was into concert promotion, got into concert promotion. And so I spent some years, you know, hanging out backstage at concerts and meeting musicians. So I was very immersed into the world of music from an early age, from my early teenage years. When I was uh, 17 years old, uh, I uh, dropped out of high school and moved to Los Angeles with my band and uh, we were destined to make it in the California music scene. I spent uh, four years living in Los Angeles, and um, during that time, the band didn't make it, but I worked in record stores in Los Angeles from 1988 to, until 1992. And that was an incredible time to be working at a record store in Southern California. I learned all of, I really got into hip hop at that time, although I'd been working in record stores and obviously very into music, you know, for much of my life. But living in Los Angeles really was transformative because that was such a great period for hip-hop music, for rap music, and just being right there in the heart of all of it was an amazing experience to be, you know, actually there, you know, as those records are coming out, going to the, you know, see the concerts, and, and you know, it was a great time for music and really fun. Very transformative. Um, so then I, I ultimately moved back home uh, to go to college, and um, uh, you know here I am today. <laughs> That's a whole another story. The the Los Angeles scene was it was it hip hop that you were interested in then? I assume the band was not. Yeah, well, actually, you know, I was I was recording, uh, you know, demos with hip hop musicians when I was 18 years old, doing all the instrumentals and producing the tracks, you know, with collaborating with with uh, rappers. So, you know, there there was it was all always around. My band was was not, you know, necessarily playing rap music, but working at the record store, you know, I got introduced, you know, right as it's coming out to NWA, to Cypress Hill, to Digital Underground, to 
you know, Kid Frost, all, all of the, you know, this great stuff that was coming out at that time. And, um, you know, by the time I was probably 20, 21 years old, I was at that time listening to almost nothing but, you know, rap music. And, you know, at that time there was all the grunge stuff was coming out, which was in great music too. And, and, you know, bands like Rage Against the Machine, I think I saw their 10th show or something before they were signed. I mean, it was just such a cool time to be there. That's amazing. So how did you end up coming to write the, the book on Devious Minds? So when I was, um, uh, go, I was going to the University of Kansas and finishing up there, I got, I got my first job out of college, which was as a music journalist. And at the same time I, <clears throat> excuse me, started that job, I, I was going to KU as a graduate student. So I'm kind of doing two things. One is I'm a sociologist and I'm doing, you know, sociological research. And then my job, part-time job, is to write about music and to interview bands and go to concerts and, and stuff like that. So it was a, a great, you know, great period and really fun. So I was assigned to write a, a concert review of You God, who's a member of the Wu-Tang Clan. I was going to review his show, and I went to the show, and the opening band is this act, Devious Minds, and I just thought that they were amazing. And... Um, I wrote a, wrote a review basically, you know, saying that Devious Minds had blown you got off the stage. It turns out you, Devious Minds was this band from Topeka, just down, the, just down the road, and I ended up doing a feature story about them. One of the, you know, first sort of substantial features that was written about them. And, and because I was going to graduate school and I was starting uh, to make this documentary film as part of the graduate thing that I was doing... I ended up making a music video with them, and it was their first music video, and I had never done anything like that either. But we did a video for their song, Tired of Talking, and it, it looked really cool. It, it turned out to be great. And we continued to sort of collaborate together and, and work together. And eventually, because I was making a documentary films at the time, they, you know, we said, let's make a documentary about you guys. So we did a documentary film about Devious Minds, and I interviewed everybody in the band, and I interviewed their manager. And, their fans and their friends. And I was already going to their shows. I was a fan of theirs and going to their shows and videotaping their shows. So we incorporated that footage and, you know, ended up making a two hour documentary about the band. Um, so it was, uh, you know, I was never really thrilled with that documentary. I thought it was, you know, the interviews were cool. We did good stuff, but I didn't think it was like a great documentary. Um, it was more like, you know, we were thinking of it as more of a promotional piece, like an electronic press kit or something like that. So um, it, it never kind of went anywhere. The, the band faded away. I ended up moving to Chicago to go to graduate school. And in Chicago, I uh, ended up studying hip hop and, and doing a film about hip hop and sort of continuing on with this kind of work about rap music and incorporating video into it interviewing people and, and uh, all of that same kind of stuff. And so even doing that project, I was, I was always like, oh, it would be so, you know, it was obviously influenced by Devious Minds, but it would be interesting to go back to this project. And so um, I continued to stay in touch with the group over all the years. And, um, uh, you know, ultimately in 2014, we decided let's do this as a book project. This is after my first book came out. Let's do a book project. So I interviewed everybody in the in the group in 2014, you know, for this book project. And since then, I've been interviewing them, you know, every couple of years or something like that um, and following their story. And, and uh, you know, here we are today, ultimately wrote it into a book. So it took a long time to write the book partly because I was working on a, a different book at the time. And um, 
you know, in, in part, the story has, has changed even as I was writing the book, you know, because it's taking years and years. We ended up, you know, sort of revising the ending and the group reunites and, and all of these twists and turns. So, um, you know, even, even, even we didn't kind of know how it was going to turn out in the end, but it's kind of amazing that it's here, this project that started, you know, more than 20 years ago. The the Devious Minds story is is kind of set within a local hip hop scene, right? So you mentioned that they're from Topeka. Um, can, are you able to talk a little bit about what the kind of local Topeka hip hop scene looked like prior to Devious Minds, or even just the Kansas kind of hip hop scene as a whole? Because there are some characters that are mentioned in the the book, from like the Gucci guys, etc. Are you able to kind of talk about what that scene even looked like? Because I think most people, even if they're hip hop fans are not really going to be aware of what's going on in Kansas. Yeah, absolutely. It's really the the sort of idea of a micro scene, this small scene that's, you know, sort of its own little bubble, but within that scene it's, you know, there's a there's a whole world and all these interesting artists and and things like that. Um but in the book I detail a little bit of, you know, the Gucci guys who were this early um hip hop group and really they started as as a DJ group. Uh, you know, they were mixing records together and they had four turntables and it was this sort of, you know, DJ acrobatics. And then um, eventually some of the guys started to dance and they were incorporating hip hop break dancers into it. And then some of the dancers started rapping and so they incorporated rap into it and eventually had this whole, you know, full blown show with the DJs, the dancers, the rappers. And it was, you know, like a renowned show. They played all around the you know, not just Topeka, but also Topeka is 20 miles from Lawrence, Kansas. Lawrence, Kansas has the University of Kansas, KU. That's 30,000 college students. And it has a renowned music scene. So there's a, a huge music scene in, in Lawrence. Even today, there's a big music scene, lots of venues, and then lots of students to go to those venues. So there's a lot of sort of cross-pollination uh, in that, in that uh, Kansas scene, in that eastern Kansas scene. You talk about the Devious Minds guys opening up for for You God, but prior to that, how did? Well, I could ask how Devious Minds ended up kind of forming and, and getting together, but but really, who is Devious Minds for the for the people listening at home? Who are these guys, and and what is kind of their importance in that kind of local scene? Well, it, you know, in different parts of the United States, if you were to talk about, you know, rap music coming from, let's say, South Central Los Angeles, you have to talk about NWA. You know, if you talk about uh, rap music in Kansas City, you have to talk about Tech 9 You know, he's sort of the page one. You would have to mention his name. Well, in Topeka, which is a you know, smaller city, you know, to me, you know, Devious Minds is the band that you have to mention if you're going to talk about rap music in Topeka, Kansas. In some ways, they were the sort of the founders. Now, certainly not the only rappers around. There were lots of other ones, and and there are rappers who are mentioned in the book. Um, you know, who were who were you know pioneering this scene at the same time. But I would say that they were the band that you know not not only did they go the furthest, but they were sort of the biggest. Uh, band on the scene. They were the band to beat even back then. They uh, developed, you know, they all lived in a house together and um, lived there and wrote music and, uh, you know, not recorded so much. A lot of it was performing. They learned how to um, perform because they didn't have a lot of recording equipment. And so they focused on their live show and they became this 
sort of renowned live act. Every everyone, um, not just in Topeka, but they began to get booked at at you know opening for you know some of the biggest acts around. And so when you know um, one of the, you know Black Sheep or um, you know DOS Effects would come to town. Well, who are we going to get to open? Oh, let's get Devious Minds because they were known to be a really reliable act that could just, you know, get the crowd going and, and also had this sort of local twist as well. So they became, uh, you know, they formed in the, in the early, early 90s and developed in the mid 90s. Uh, they spent a couple of years touring and, and trying to get a record deal, traveling all over the country, networking, going to conferences you know, doing whatever they could to try to, you know, sort of get a major label deal. And when that didn't pan out, they decided to release their own independent label, uh, own independent record on their own independent label. And this is around the time that I met the group. They were just about to release their debut album after all those years. Um, and so that album came out and it, it did get a lot of critical acclaim. They were nominated for awards for several years in a row. Um, and they continued to be, you know, opening for these major acts. Sort of the pinnacle of their career, and written about in the book, is their opening for the Wu Tang Clan, which was this big show. You know, everybody's there, and um, you know, they they did an amazing job. It was a, a incredible performance. Um, unfortunately, you know, the the band, you know, there was volatility within the group as well. There, you know, part of what made them so great was that there was a volatility and electricity. And, you know, like many bands like that, they weren't able to, to sort of sustain themselves. And so, um, you know, they, they kind of drifted apart in, in, uh, in 2002, 2003. Got you. There's a, a fair amount of kind of the, uh, let's say the tail end of the book or the, the last third of the book that talks about what happens after Devious Minds ends up breaking up and the, the legacy and kind of the story that ends up continuing. What does end up happen? Uh, what happens after that initial kind of collapse? Let's say. Well, and and you know the the book is structured in three parts, and so the first part is begins with the childhoods of the four members of the group, um, and how the group formed, how they came to live together. The second part of the book is is at their sort of artistic prime and in the heart of everything when I was there. And then um, part three comes, you know, tells what happens afterwards. You know, what happens from, let's say, 2003, 2004, when the group kind of breaks up. Um, and what happens to the group, you know, when they don't make it, um, you know, when it kind of falls apart for them. And they go in, in very different directions. And um, I mean, I, uh, should, I, should, should I spoil it and tell everybody what actually happens? Or should I just say they go in very different directions and you, have to, <laughs> you almost have to read it to find out? <laughs> Uh, you could certainly spoil it a little bit. I don't think that ends up hurting. Um, yeah, feel free to spoil it a little bit. All right, I'll spoil it a little bit. So they, they all go in very uh, different directions. You know, Stu is the founder of the band, and he continues to make music. He's, you know, the artistic you know, soul of the group in some ways. And for him, it's all about the music. And so he continues to make music and record music at just an, almost an incredible rate. And so he puts out, you know, something like 12 albums in, you know, six years or something like that and just records and continues to sort of keep the, the, the musical, not, not so much the dream alive, but just continues on as an artist, decides that for what, you know, what is important to him is the art and not necessarily the commerce or the commercialism. At the same time, you know, because technology changes, and that's part of the story too, 
technology changes and that allows him to then distribute his music to the world for free. And, you know, maybe he doesn't make tons of money from it, but people listen to his music all over the world and they give him feedback, you know, in some ways his audience is much more significant than it was back then. And numerically at the same time, you know, Stu is an artist and he talks about how, you know, it's, very different having listeners, you know, who you never know or see listen to your music versus, you know, the the live experience that they were so known for and having that face-to-face contact with their fans, you know, he, he, I think he misses that in some ways. So he keeps the, I, I would say, the dream alive and, and then also um, kind of finds peace uh, with a family. You know, he raises a family, he, you know, has children, he gets married and kind of finds a solid uh, family life for himself. Um, so that's, that's Stu. Um, Barry, who uh, met Stu when they were four or five years old and, um, you know, have been friends all of this time, he, um, you know, ultimately moves to Denver and um, takes up with another group of musicians there and continues to release music and record music, um, but has, you know, struggles and challenges along the way that are described um, in some detail in the book. And, um, and, and that becomes part of his story, but he still lives in Denver, uh, the Denver area today. Um, Damon, uh, Damon, who had sort of always had a job, you know, back when I met them and had this sort of white collar job and was kind of a professional. Well, he ended up moving to Dallas and um, becoming a corporate trainer for Samsung and, you know, working in the technology industry and in the phone industry. He has traveled the world. He's, you know, been to Argentina. Um, you know, he's been married for a long time, you know, lives at a nice house, drives a really nice car. Um, so, you know, he, he, you know, he says that all of the things that he dreamed about getting in rap music, he ended up, um, you know, getting by going this sort of other path. And so, um, he pursued, you know, sort of the more of a, you might call it a traditional corporate path and became very successful. You know, what's interesting about him is that, you know, his, his story certainly doesn't begin that way. You know, it's, it's, it's quite a trajectory that he takes, you know, from the beginning to there. So seeing that story unfold was amazing too, because he was, he hadn't done any of that when I met him, you know, he was just, you know, sort of getting started on that path in some ways. So it was amazing to see how that turned out. And then, um, uh, Dewan had some real struggles along the way. Um, you know, he spent, spent some years in prison and, um, that's detailed in the book. And it, obviously that comes with a lot of challenges, but he, you know, he was sort of in and out of these institutions as a young person. And then also, um, later in life, um, when he finally, you know, does sort of, I, I don't want to spoil it too much, but there's, um, quite an incredible twist right at the end. Um, and to some degree, we all wondered if he was ever even going to, um, live or walk again, but, um, uh, amazingly he, uh, did come back from all of that. And, you know, he's still recording music. He's out there recording music and all that stuff today. So their story has just been a, absolutely incredible. I mean, you can't, you couldn't even possibly make it up. And as I said, I watched it all unfold over 20 years too, which was, amazing for me the book kind of celebrates this this idea of of a failed music career and it takes seriously all the things that never really happened um what can what can the devious mind story really tell us about failure because i think that's a 
important element of indie music, certainly underground rap, but it's not the story that typically gets told. Right. Well, I think, you know, there's two parts of it. One is that, you know, I, I say in the book a little bit, I just touch on this uh, slightly at the beginning, but even our stories of failure, of these success stories, you know, we, there's this narrative around failure now that failure is just great, that everybody should fail, that all the great startups, you know, were the CEO was somebody who had a bunch of failed startups and then, you know, figured it out. And, um, you, you know, there's all this sort of narrative around, you know, the, the CV of failures and, you know, how failures you learn from your failures. Um, but what happens when you don't, when that's not the experience, you know, I mean, in my own experience, failure is not always a great thing. Sometimes failures, that sucks, you know, and sometimes failure doesn't lead to success, you know, not, not necessarily. So, you know, one is I'm, I'm sort of questioning this idea that, you know, all failure is great and all failure is a stepping stone to success because I feel like, that's become the narrative. And in some ways that covers up, you know, that allows a lot of failure to occur and to get sort of, you know, brushed aside as no, no, this is just stepping stones to uh, success. Don't worry about your marginalized position. Um, you're just on your way to great things. And I think not necessarily. Um, so one is sort of questioning that idea. But then the other thing is, um, you know, to what degree was their career actually a failure? Do they see it that way? I don't think that they necessarily do. They had some incredible moments. They achieved so many things. I think of, you know, when I played music, we didn't get anywhere near what, what Devious Minds accomplished. And, you know, I, I still look back on that experience in, in some ways that are very positive. And I did learn some things, you know, not necessarily from the failures of it, but maybe from the successes, from, but from the creative parts of it. And I think um, it, it's the same for Devious Minds. They had some incredible moments, some incredible highlights. And um, to just say that, you know, because they didn't sell 10 million albums, that it somehow constitutes a failure. You know, I mean, I, I just don't, I don't agree with that. I don't think they agree with that either. You know, um, so, you know, they almost made it, but they, they sure did a lot of cool things along the way and um, had a lot of fun and have a lot of great memories. And, um, you know, they, they accomplished a lot more than most. And now look at them. They have a book written about them and everything. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think prevented them from, let's say, breaking out of the, the Kansas region? Because that is the book title. I mean, I, I think that that's tough. I, I, you know, they could have, you know, moved to New York or something like that. I think to some degree they were distinct because they were from Kansas. But at the at the time, maybe... You know, that they, they had a lot of music that, that, you know, discussed, you know, the Midwest and being from Kansas. But, you know, maybe they could have even played that up more. You know, some of the songs like Central Time Zone, um, Check the Kids from Kansas. These are songs that didn't appear on their first album, even though, you know, they were very rooted in that, that sort of identity. And so, you know, perhaps they could have even emphasized that and played it up even more. But I think to some degree, they always got questioned, you know, like there's rap music in Kansas, you know, they have hip hop in Kansas. People almost couldn't believe it uh, that they were from Kansas. And so, uh, you know, I think it, it just, you know, people didn't quite get it. They didn't understand um, that there could be a group from Kansas that was really good. I think now the idea of that, that sort of micro scenes, people understand that there's, you know, great uh, music taking place all, all over. And, and certainly, you know, the, the way that people listen to music has changed a lot too. I think from 
it just from the perspective of a of a hip hop fan and a hip hop kind of listener, I think the identity of Kansas plays some sort of role in this as well. Um, certainly, when I think of Kansas City hip hop or it, just Kansas hip hop, I think of Kansas City for one, and I am thinking about the names like Tech Nine and what he ended up doing with Strange Music. And for those that are listening that are not familiar with really hip hop or what Strange Music is, it's a very alternative experimental hip hop label. Um, that has kind of pushed the the genre into kind of different territories and certainly represents a different sound than what Devious Minds does. Devious Minds would be a little bit more kind of street-oriented rap, um, whereas the Strange Music guys are distinctly not that. Um, but when I think about the region, I am thinking about what Tech 9 did and the Strange Music sound and... I think that has at least something to do with how I would kind of come at this and limit uh, maybe my, I don't want to say expectations for Devious Minds, but that's certainly not the the term, but it would frame my going into that scene looking for a specific type of sound and Devious Minds is not necessarily that. Do you think that the kind of rise of, of strange music impacted their story at all? Or do you think it was always completely separate? Well, yeah, Tech Nine was was around. Certainly, when Devious Minds got started at their first show, Tech Nine was there, and already he was the headliner. So, you know, they were they were in a competition. He was not part of the comp that competition. He was he was like a separate performer because he was that far along. Even already, he was ahead of them, and they were excited that they got to you know meet him and decipher with him because already he was making a lot of waves in Kansas City. So Tech Nine was kind of yeah. always, you know, ahead of the uh, ahead of the game. But I would say that the strange music sound and and that all the development of that in some ways came su- after Devious Minds. I mean, Tech Nine was certainly working on that and doing his thing. But um, you know, he was you know when this book begins, he was just getting started with his career. He hadn't broken out nationally at that point. Um, you know, his real development, I would say, came in the two thousands, right as um, you know, Devious Minds is kind of falling apart. Um, so, you know, it was, it, you know, Tech Nine certainly was was ascendant, but, um, you know, I, I think that they, everybody was looking for who was going to break out of the Midwest, you know, and Nelly also came out right around this time too and really exploded um, out of the other side of Missouri. And, and so everybody was looking for the big breakout artist from the Midwest. And I think, you know, you had Nelly, you had Tech Nine. You know, there was great stuff coming. Saint Lunatics, exactly. Yeah. yeah, stuff coming out of even you know some Chicago stuff kind of got lumped into that. So um, yeah, I mean Tech Nine, he he is the the you know the MC that you think of when you think of Kansas City rap for sure. There were also you know interesting rappers like Mac Lethal who were around who had a you know incredible career and who again were just getting started as Devious Minds as as I was. Uh, you know, meeting devious minds. So, um, yeah, it was just neat to, that whole scene was amazing. There's so many great musicians, so much going on, you know, um, in some ways you, you, you don't know, you know, what you, what you have until it's gone. Cause that was a, a very unique and special time. So you had a relationship with devious minds, uh, not necessarily from the very beginning, but certainly over 20 year period um for decades you've you've had a a kind of a steady relationship you did the the music video you've you've done 
collaborative work. You you wrote the some of the articles for local uh, publications in Topeka. Um, when you sit down to to write this book, you've already had that kind of past experience, that past knowledge. Do you find yourself? How much do you find yourself learning during the book process that you didn't necessarily know prior? Yeah, that's a great question. So I learned so much. I, I thought I was <laughs> the expert on Devious Minds, and I learned so much from writing the book. And it began with, you know, I had shot probably 50 or so, maybe more hours of videotape, you know, back when I knew them in 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003. So I went back to all of the videotapes first and I went, I looked at every second of video, the, the shows, which I had seen, you know, I had seen the shows for sure and had, had visited that footage before and posted some of it on YouTube before. Um, so I was somewhat familiar with the shows and I was familiar with the interviews from the documentary that we did, but there was so much more in the, that footage in those tapes that I didn't know was there. And then also I just learned so much by watching their shows and also listening to their music. Even though I had, I had listened to their music for years and had always listened to their music, but I listened to it in a really new kind of way. And, um, sort of listening to it maybe systematically. So thinking about, okay, they worked with this producer SG. I want to listen to all the SG tracks, just the SG tracks and just the stuff that they recorded with SG. And that really just changed my thinking about the group and changed how, you know, I understood their music. And that then changed how I looked at the live performances too. So um, I, I learned so much about them musically that um, I, I didn't know and thought that I did. And then also going through all of the interviews, I just found, you know, so many things that I didn't expect. I found interviews that I didn't know I had. I had footage that I didn't know was there. I found got lots of like snippets of conversation that were going on at a party when somebody's talking in the background. But, you know, I mean, I just there were just treasures and gems galore. And it was it was fun, you know, a fun experience. In some ways, you couldn't like uh, if you're a music geek, you, this is the ultimate experience to get to just do this complete deep dive into a band that, you know, almost no one's ever heard of. You know, it, it was it has been very fun to do that. And then also, you know, Stu was amazing about providing me with some footage. So very key to the book. Stu got me a, a 1998 complete concert from 1998 at the Granada. This is you know, about a year before I met the a group and described the concert in the book, but that it was very well shot and it was, it was so helpful to have that old footage. And then also they had provided me with about an hour of old, old footage uh, when I did the documentary. So I had clips of performances. I had little pieces of them recording, you know, at, at their house back in the day. I had footage of them on the road in Chicago and stuff like that. Not a lot, but but still just enough to, you know, really start to unpack it. So lots of, of cool stuff. And, and ultimately, um, that that was at the heart of this sort of part two of the book. Well, the first couple of parts of the book, really. But part two, all of the, the interview quotes and all of that material comes just from the videotapes. I didn't want them to be, um, you know, reflecting on that. Um, from 20 years, you know, later with, with that vantage point, I wanted to capture them in the moment, what that was like, 
you know, the electricity of that time. And then in part three to have them maybe reflect on it more. So it was great to have that footage because I could put those sort of limitations around the project and it almost made it better because of that limitation. It's amazing. I do a lot of these interviews myself. And I think like you, I, I tend to learn the most from the transcription process. Um, I'll have the, con I'm the one having the conversations uh, with these artists. Uh, you would think that I would have an understanding of what that conversation really entails, but it seems like uh, a month or two goes by and maybe even immediately after the interview, if I, if I sit down and transcribe it, there's there's all sorts of new kind of details that reveal themselves when you actually kind of revisit something and you take time to kind of analyze it and construct it. Um, I'm always amazed by that because I think most people would assume that, oh, you've already done the interview. This is just for your own records, right? Uh, but no, you learn. It, it's, su it's such a learning process to be able to revisit that material and kind of look at it through different angles, like you were saying. No, I think that's an, a great point. And I, I didn't even mention that. I, I should because I did transcribe every single word of every interview from, you know, back in the day, but also all these interviews that we did, you know, subsequent to that time. It was over, I think it was 50 something hours of formal stuff, plus all the informal stuff. I transcribed all that, too. So hanging out at parties and um, sure. going through that, I agree with you 100 percent. You know, I, I don't use, you know, an outside transcription service. I don't, you know, use, a, you know, chat bots or anything like that. I really have to sit there and do it by hand. And I feel like it, it allows me to understand the material in a way that I never could otherwise. And every time I go back to those interviews too, those transcriptions, it's like, ooh, here's something new that I hadn't, you know, sort of thought about. And so even being able to revisit those transcriptions throughout the writing process, I think really is is very very key to it so uh, yeah i've always done that in all my projects i've done a lot of very you know interview heavy projects and for me transcribing them and transcribing them myself is really um sort of key to the process yeah really really vital so this is this is published through university press it's published through columbia university press uh, but the book deliberately kind of abstains from theoretical conversations why why make that choice well that, that, you know, partially that came out of a conversation with the press themselves. Um, you know, originally, I, I kind of had the thought that you have to do a theoretical treatment. And so the original book, as I conceived it, was to be the story of Devious Minds. And then I will sort of impose a, a theoretical structure upon it and talk sort of theoretically about their story. So I did. I started by writing out the story of the band, kind of what you would see in the book today. And then I did add this theory to it, thinking about some ideas that I was developing and thinking about. And um, we, we, you know, I sent this out uh, to just a few presses and, you know, Columbia liked it. They uh, sent it out to the reviewers and, you know, the reviewers like, you know, everybody kind of liked the narrative and thought, you know, eh, this theory's, you know, really is going to need some work. And, and so you have to figure out what to do about this theory. It either has to be a lot better or you have to pare it back or something. So my thought was, let's pare it back. Let's not uh, do a real theoretical treatment because it is the story of the band that's interesting. And, um, you know, it was, it was, you know, Eric Schwartz at Columbia was just amazing. Um, so supportive of this project. And he said, you know, I think you should, ultimately, he said through a couple of meetings, 
you should just remove all of the theory. And, and, and I, you know, of course, I'm going all of it, 100%, you know. And, and he's like, yeah, you know, really, when you take it out, it just reads better if you just remove it completely and don't have it. And I'm like, I'm going, but, but my great theory. But he was right. And, um, you know, ultimately, what I did was I went back through that, you know, manuscript I took out all of the theory, 100% of it, and thinking, oh, my God, how can I do this? And, um, and it was better, but also that freed me because that was about 10,000 words of theory and jargon. And that, that freed me to do something that I think was so important, and that was go and interview um, some other people. And that was Randy, who I had interviewed back in the day, but I you know, interviewed Randy. I interviewed Carla Daniels, I interviewed Troy, their first DJ, and I interviewed Steve Garcia. And I think having their voices in the book and just adding their stories just really, um, you know, added something special to it for me and made the book so much better. So taking out that theory allowed me to add those voices in. Um, I think, you know, something that they said at the press is this is a great example of um, showing and not telling. And so I think that all of the theoretical ideas that I had, you know, you probably could, you know, still impose those theories and talk about these different things, but you can also just read it as a standalone book and, and it can go on the music shelf and doesn't necessarily have to go on the sociology shelf. And, um, you know, to me, ultimately that that's, to me, that made the book so much better and it kind of freed the book in a way that it, 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 was, it was very constrained before that by this theoretical apparatus that I had imposed upon it because I thought that that's what you have to do when you're publishing with an academic press. Now, my first uh, book, Chicago Hustle and Flow, I intentionally wanted to make that the most theoretical uh, book about hip hop you could ever possibly read and still have it be a good book. And um, that's because I think that a lot of times, you know, music studies don't get taken seriously and hip hop studies definitely don't get taken seriously at all. And so I wanted to do a book that you just was undeniably theoretical and was just rooted in and in, in grounded in theory. And so that was that was intentionally done with Hustle and Flow. And so it was fun in this book to get to do something that went in the opposite direction. And I, even that came as a surprise to me. I didn't expect that the press you know, would, would um, go in that direction. And to me, that's what makes the book good. <laughs> this would have been um, a pretty, you know, hard book to unpack if it had been still weighted with all of that um, theory that kind of has nothing to do in some ways with the group or their story. Yeah, the book almost reads, it almost reads as biography. Um, and maybe that's the genre that you would even place it within. How do you kind of classify this? This thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it is like that. You know, it's it's funny when I was when when I you know had that sort of experience of of liberation from the the theory. I thought of a couple of books that I was had read when I was a teenager. One of them was Hammer of the Gods by Led Zeppelin, and the other one was No One Here Gets Out Alive. I think it's Danny Sugarman, the, the biography of Jim Morrison. Now, I didn't go back and reread those books because I figured they probably wouldn't hold up, you know, after all of these years. They're probably not that great. But I remembered the sort of spirit of those books and what I loved about them when I was a teenager. And that's that they had the sort of the myth and the legend of, you know, those those artists, you know. And so and Devious Minds had these sort of moments of, you know, they 
they, you know, end up opening for the, the great band and, you know, putting on the amazing performance. They, um, you know, are brought in to write a song at the last minute and they're able to, you know, produce this incredible, you know, song right there on the spot. Um, they go and play the tiny club and it's, you know, they, they treat it like it's Madison Square Garden. You know, you had these sort of moments, and even some of the, the moments of calamity and, and, you know, problems that they had, you know, ranting on stage and, and things like that, overturning the, the t table at the award ceremony. Um, so even some of these moments, you know, that the sort of reminded me in some ways of the spirit of those books. Those books, as I recall, and again, I didn't go back and read them, but they were, I think they were kind of filled with sex and drugs, and there's not a lot of that in this book. But that sort of spirit of, you know, here's the, the myth and what made them so great. You know, for me, one thing to remember is that all of this does start with the fact that I just love their music, you know, and from the first time I saw this band, I just thought this is one of the greatest bands I've ever seen. And I've lived, you know, been around music my whole life and I just loved their music from the very beginning and I still do. And so, you know, for me, that that's where it all kind of stems from, you know, from that. And that, that was really driving. And in those books, you get that, too. You know, what made, you know, Led Zeppelin so great, you know, um, what made Jim Morrison so iconic you know, and, and part of that is the music, the shows, you know, all of that kind of stuff. It reminded me in some ways of the Devious Mind story. You get a lot of those same moments, even though this isn't the story of, you know, the famous group or whatever. So I guess I was in some ways guided by those kind of books, even though I didn't go back and read them. And even I sent them to the cover designer and said, you know, look at these <laughs> books. I found the same editions that I had read when I was a teenager and I said, see if you can do something, you know, with these elements. And, and you do, if you go look at, at both of those books, you'll see some little hints of that in the cover design, which I just thought was so cool. The, the book. And again, for those listening at home, it's called devious minds and that's spelled D B S by the way, devious minds and then minds with a Z um, or Z um, in the, the subtitle, the 20 year saga of the greatest rap group to almost make it out of Kansas by Jeff Harkness. The book for for a hip hop fan, I see the I see the appeal, right? Especially somebody that's into kind of indie or underground rap. And if you're particularly interested in something like Kansas City hip hop, or, or not Kansas City, but but Kansas hip hop, it it makes sense to to have kind of a fascination. Someone like myself, I, I understand why I'm interested in a book like this. Why do you think other people should should read this? What is what is the sales pitch for a book this specific, I guess? Well, to me, it's actually, it's a universal story. It's the opposite. You know, this is a book about trying to achieve your dream and not achieving it. And what do you do after that? You know, that happens to all of us. You know, that to me, I felt very connected to this story because we've all experienced this, this same thing. You know, what happens when you shoot for the moon and it doesn't work out, you know? Do, you know, do you adjust? How do you adjust? What comes after that? What moves do you make? To me, it's a very universal story, you know, because we all have disappointments, you know, we all have 
things that don't pan out the way that we want. And even our successes aren't necessarily like, oh, this is everything that I ever dreamed of. You know, sometimes you achieve a success and it's like, hmm, no, you know, the, you see that story all the time too, you know. So, um, you know, to me, it's a very universal story. And also, you know, although it is very much rooted in music, it's all, you also get their childhoods, you get, you know, all of this stuff that came afterwards. So a lot of it's about music, but a lot of it's just about a life, you know, and relationships and struggle. I, I also was, yeah, I was very sort of captivated by Stu's, you know, story and sort of quest for a, a you know, a solid family and, you know, a couple of the guys were adopted and things like that. So I, I really think that those elements, which are very much part of the book, are, are you know, outside of music. So, you know, to me, it's a, a real universal story about, you know, trying to achieve your dreams and, um, you know, struggling to do so. And, and then also, what do, you, what do you do after that? Beautiful. Well, Jeff, we've, we've taken up a lot of your time. I wanted to ask you before we wrap things up, what is it that you're currently, currently working on? So I always have a bunch of things in the works. I just finished a, a really kind of a fun piece that I got to do right after the Devious Minds book was done. It's about, it's a music. It's about um, comic books and Kiss, <laughs> the, band, the band Kiss. And it's for an academic book that's coming out. They're doing a, a sort of a treatment of a bunch of different comic, comic, comic book uh, heroes in the Marvel and DC universes, um, you know, from all of these different perspectives. And so... They came. They they came to me and said, "Do you want to do a piece for this?" And I thought, "I don't. I don't really know anything about, you know, comics, and this is just not my realm." But I was like, "Oh, I'd love to write a thing about Kiss and Kiss comic books." So I got to do a deep dive into the history of Kiss and comic books, and they, you know, they put their blood in the inkwell and stuff. So that's going to come out as a book chapter next this year or next year, and I'm I'm looking forward to that. It's so fun to write and to research. And then um, I'm probably about halfway through the first uh, draft on my fourth book. It is about music. I'm not get, I, I don't like to jinx it, so I won't say more than that. But I'll say that it's it's totally about music, and um, and and it's also in some ways a left turn. It's definitely it's not about rap music either. Um, although I, I love rap music and um, you know hip hop scholarship too. That's by far not the only thing that I listen to. And, and um, you know, I'm excited to get to write about some of this other stuff, too. Yeah, it's fascinating. So th is there a lot of Kiss comic books? Was that a, was that a thing? <laughs> well, yeah, you'll have to read the piece. But yeah, I mean, Kiss was approached by Marvel to do a comic book in the 1970s. And it was sort of a, a you know, match made in heaven. And so Kiss, uh, as always, thinking, how can we, you know, make a show out of this? They, um, you know, went to the Marvel printing press and had blood drawn by a nurse and poured into the inkwell. So their blood is literally in the red ink that was used for the first Kiss comic in, I think, 1977. So um, from then on, they got a lot of publicity. And from then on, they have, you know, had a relationship with Marvel and other comic book companies over over many years. Yeah, it's a pretty wild story. Wow, that's that's absolutely fascinating. It sounds like a great project. Um yeah. Thank you. Jeff, I, I wanted to thank you for being on the show today. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. This was so fun to get to talk about this book after all this time. So I really appreciate the invitation and all your great questions too. 100%. Thank you so much and, and take care.